Print on Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write on Audio has moved to a weekly format, splitting our content into shorter themed podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any of our editions. Write on Audio Interviews inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. This month's interview is with Professor Wynne Thomas. Professor Thomas teaches English at Swansea University and is the author of a number of books dealing with the history of Wales and its literary and bardic tradition. His most recent publication is the critically acclaimed poetry collection, The History of Wales in Twelve Poems. This interview was recorded live as part of Pentaprint's ReadFest. The interviewer is writer and editor, author and poet, Madeline F. White. If you'd like to read for us, when we'd love to hear you. Thank you. Just just a quick word of explanation. An Irene, therefore, is, as far as we know, a South century poet who wrote in Welsh, which was a very new language at that time because it's a strange amalgam of uh, the original Celtic language uh, and uh, the Latin that influenced it during the time of the Roman occupation. It's about the Godovin, the Votadini is what the uh, Romans call them. That is one of the many Celtic peoples who were inhabiting the British Isles at that time. Uh, And the Godovin was situated, believe it or not, in uh, the modern lowlands of Scotland, because the peoples, Celtic peoples of Wales, were of course scattered right across, that they possessed the whole of the British Isles. And the different peoples, the different tribes were all in close contact with each other. And uh, the Godothin, therefore, is one such people coming under pressure uh, as the Saxons began increasingly uh, to become aggressive invaders. And the Godothin is about the sending of a tiny war band of 100 or so men uh, who are feasted for a whole year. No doubt, made thoroughly drunk, just as modern-day soldiers frequently <laughs> went to battle high, you know, on drugs and heaven knows what. Uh, it's an old, old practice uh, to get men going, to get men killing. And uh, in that state of mind, they were sent down to Catrick, Catraith, in Welsh, Catraith, which you'll hear in the first line, uh, to, to, to confront an enemy that was far greater in number and more powerful. And therefore, the end was predictable. It is a suicide mission. So this is the poem by Anna Yorin. Gwyr a aeth gatraeth, oithraeth aethi. Glas fe ddi hanquin, a gwenwyn fi. Trichant drwy boeriant yn gytai, a gwedi eluch, taw eluch fi. Cyd elwyn tylana i bynydi, gadl diau angau i. O vreithach gatraeth pan adrofir maond a chiorant a'i choed bi chir. Edirn, di edirn, amgyn dir, am mai bion gwdebog, gwerian enwyr. Y ffwrthynt lanwyswar gelorawr hir, di tri o dynghedfen angen gywir. A dynghwyd i didwch a chyfwch hir. Cyd y fem fedd gloriw. Both lie, Babir. Keed vai die, Ulas. I gas. Be here.
This is my translation, which I, I, I attempted, not expecting that to do so, because I wasn't satisfied with the translations that were extant. There are many of them. But for me, they're all rather lame. They lack the savagery, the edge, the, the, the aggression uh, of the original. And I wanted to try and convey something of that. And I can in a minute talk about the sources I had in mind, including Ezra Pound and, and uh, important work uh, of our own time as well. This is how it goes. Catraith bent went a voluble host, 300 packed in close array, dinner feast, then silence. Due penance done in myriad churches, yet stone, death, death riddled them through. Tales come from Catraith's tell how heroes fell, were mourned long, fierce land protectors, sons of good Debog, true to the end. Bodies stretched on blood-soaked beers, doomed to face the wretched reckoning, decreed to Tidwoch and Kulhir. Glow of wine in candle flame, sweet the taste, the aftertaste bitter. This is not a wonderful poetry in English, there, but, but, but at least here and there it captures something of the savagery of the original. Um, and if you read the the, 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 the extant translations, they're a little better than you know, the feeble paraphrases and uh, and so. So that's that's it really. I mean, that's that that's that. If, if you want to go on about it, I can go endlessly about it, of course, and talk about uh, my models for writing like that and all the rest of it and the reasons for doing it. But I wanted to come back to the point you were making, Melanie, with which I'm in complete agreement. We need to cherish our bilingualism but in order to do that we need to understand it better yeah and we need others to understand it better than we do because the trouble with wales for example is it has become in its own view because it's become so anglophone it's become a monoglot society which is not true but sadly that frequently is how the Welsh actually view themselves and conduct their lives they don't realize that in being monoglot, well, they think they're being international because they think the whole world is like that. The truth is that whatever it is, 95% of the world, of course, is bilingual. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but what it means to be that, and then, uh, to, uh, to another point that you made at the beginning of my introduction to me, I've worked in all sorts of areas. I, I've done a lot of work in American literature. But when I decided to come back and, and concentrate on, on, on Welsh matters, what struck me with great force was that, believe it or not, this was the end of the 20th century, and yet I knew of no sustained effort being made by anybody, scholars or otherwise, to try to bring the two literary cultures of Wales together. And through that, to develop a bifocal view of Wales. Now, there is something shocking about that, and yet something that speaks to the problem that we and I share. Yeah. And that is the lack of understanding of what it means to be. I then went ahead and I published number of books, one of which was called, and it's relevant to what, to, to what you were to say, Corresponding Cultures. Yeah. That is, cultures are in a very, very complex way, because in a sense, so to speak, they inhabit the same tiny plot of land that is Wales. They are, whether they like it or not, whether they're conscious or not, they are in constant correspondence. Yeah. Um, I and, think and the, the failure to understand that struck me powerfully. So that's why, and this therefore is just one tiny example of this book, which is, as you explained, is, is meant to be a bestseller and has turned out to be such as the whole point of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, that, that, that's just, just a, a late example uh, for a popular market of, of what my vision has been realised here in, in a very, very, I think, attractive way. So okay. that, I stopped there because otherwise I just go on to the next hour. Okay. Well, I think that's this is a perfect example of, you know, how you absolutely captivated your audience. Um, and hey, and actually many of the things that you touch upon, you know, the creation of a nationhood and a polyglot society that we have now is actually things I would like to explore through mm. your expertise as a bilingual Welshman and some of the ideas that potentially mm. we as a cult who is being increasingly homogenized by language are actually finding ourselves kind of almost without an identity now. But to come back to that, I would really love to find out when I was researching you, you know, everywhere you come up as as I introduced you, you know, it's it's, you know, you're you're an academic, you're a professor, you're a member of this, a member of that. But actually, I haven't really seen you introduced, particularly as a poet, and yet that was when we were in Hay. That was the first thing you, one of the first things you said about yourself. You know, you're a poet, you've published several things, and they haven't, you know, your your publishers haven't made much money, but they've made more money <laughs> with this. But, but what struck me um, so much is, um, when did you realise the different aspects of who you were, kind of literary critic, academic, poet, and how do these different strands weave in together? And what do you see as the most important now, or is there a most important? Well, I'm not a poet at all. I know published poetry, um, but but I was groomed to attempt. I wouldn't call it poetry. It's, it's just translation. It's verse here for the reasons I've given you, not just there, as you know, but in a couple of other examples as well, because there was nothing that satisfied me. I've always had enormous empathy for the poets, which is why I've been friends with, you know, people like Mena Elvin and uh, and and R.S. Thomas, most particularly, Seamus Heaney, you name it, and many, Gwyneth Lewis, many of the poets are with. Strange enough, I feel more comfortable in their company than in the company of fellow academics. Why that is, I don't know. I don't care. But that's the truth of it. And poetry has always been my first language. You know, I mean, that seemed natural to me. It was for my mother. It was for me. Uh, I wasn't really aware of it until much later. And I suddenly entered a society where poetry apparently was regarded as strange, as peculiar. I, I, I didn't understand that. I don't understand that. Well, I, I do, but I should have mean. Uh, it seems, seems to me self-evident that, that, that poetry should speak very powerfully. Uh, to everybody according to their capacity, as they say. Um, how do these things go? Well, I'll tell you that the biggest and interesting thing, you see, is why did I become a specialist in American poetry? I've published two books on Whitman and done a great deal travelling all around the world talking about him, etc. I'll tell you why, although I don't need to strike me a bit later than, than it began to happen, is because um, Whitman isn't English. <laughs> he's American. Uh, and uh, there are aspects of America that speak to me uh, uh, in a way that uh, is quite different from... Uh, by the way, I, I admire the English beyond measure. I mean, I think they're one of the most remarkable peoples in the world. Um, and I think their literature is beyond compare. I mean, they don't understand. They, they don't in a way fully appreciate how many great, great great writers they've got, you know. Um, so many, they can easily discard them depending on, on the, <laughs> the taste of the age, you know. I mean, you, you, know, you must just start listing that the, the writers they ignore is, is staggering. But nevertheless, um, their culture is different from mine. <laughs> and 
I go a lot to the southeast of England because my, my, my daughter lives there and, and I love the people there, but they're not my people, you know. <laughs> they, they quite, they're, 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 their radar is different, their antennae are different, their, their social antennae are different. So America, I could actually feel more at home with because they at least appear to be more upfront. That's that's misleading, but they appear to be more upfront, okay, and come on strong. And lots of Welsh people are like that. So that's how I reconciled those two. I mean, I gradually began to realise that, that that there was a correspondence here too for me, particularly as a bilingual Welshman with aspects of America. Um, so that answers that question. That's the that's the best answer I can give, really. Um, and uh, as for the poetry business, I'm not a poet, but I'm a disappointed poet. You know, in other words, uh, um, I would like to have been one, but, but I tried when I was 18 and I, I was at least bright enough to realise I was no good, you know. So I stopped. Um, so in a way, I am compensating for that by, by, by as you say, um, trying to share my passion with poetry, which is what I try to do all my life in my teaching, which is therefore how you reconcile that with my scholarship. Um, the, the, the teaching, my parents were teachers, uh, my uncles were teachers, my daughter is a teacher, it's the plague of the family, you know, uh, and teachers, if they're any good, are communicators, aren't they? Yeah. And yeah. I was passionate, I only came into this profession, although I've now regarded as a researcher, which I suppose I am, I came into this profession to teach. For me, there's a big question of cultural appropriation mm. versus mm. cultural export. And um, of course, you know, the classic cultural appropriation of, I think, again, you'll have to excuse my my pronunciation, but the Mabinogion, mm. uh, you know, and, and yeah. Arthur's legend, which yeah. then became assimilated as English. But, you know, there's just so many examples. And the Irish ordinary people exported that Irish culture, you know, as, mm. as, as the biggest mm. global export. And I, I think that tension between cultural appropriation and 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 exporting mm. is what what is heritage, what is language. I think that's quite an interesting one, and I'm just wondering whether you would like to comment on that um, and and the kind of idea of anglophone Welsh writing destroying culture or reaching masses. So that that kind of tension between those two things, I would love you to comment on that if you could. Oh, the great reason about all of that, I'm afraid. Uh... <laughs> Let's start by my recalling um, the period I spent at Harvard as a visiting professor. And I went under the co-op, uh, the coop, as they call it in Harvard, in Cambridge. Uh, I had to look around after I'd arrived and I saw extraordinary display of, of, of CDs there. Uh, uh, and the whole section was entitled Celtic Music. I got quite excited. I thought, ah, OK. So I began to rummage. Irish CD. Rummage again. Irish CD. Rummage again, Irish CD. Another one, Irish CD. There wasn't a single Welsh CD in the whole collection. And that brings me to the way that the Welsh have scanted their Celticness when it comes to advertising their princes of the world. Now, I could go on for ages about the reasons for this. It has to do with the industrialization of Wales and therefore the centre of gravity socially and politically and in terms of power shifted away, of course, from Welsh speaking Wales. Uh, and therefore, many of, of, of that background don't want to know about the Celtic past, which links us to Ireland very closely, of course. So it's been a great beef of mine that the Welsh, since today's tourism is so important, have never until this year made use of their Celticness. 
Now, the Celtic is different from that of the Irish, by the way. Um, the Irish have got artefacts and all sorts of glorious things. We don't know many of those, are called Celtic. They've got it's a language. By now, it's the only Celtic language left in the whole world that is spoken by a significant, significant enough number of people to maintain a, a vibrant, modern, contemporary culture. Now that, since specialists tell us there never was a Celtic race anyway, okay, all there ever was was Celtic cultures, just as today there are Anglophone cultures all over the world, you know, I mean, Africa, India, South Africa, uh, Australia, Canada, if you think ahead 2,000 years, that'll be regarded as the Anglosphere. Well, the Celtic is the same as Anglosphere, okay, that's what it means. Um, so the, 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 the carrier of what we call Celtic culture was the Celtic language. And by now, the only remnant of that that's left in the whole world is the Welsh of modern day Wales. So that's one thing, the, the failure to, 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 to take advantage of what we've got off the world, what you call the export version of Welsh and Celtics. However, the other side of the coin is it's an ambivalent, it's an ambivalent process that um, because unless you're very careful, you're selling your soul by, as it were, badging it in that way, marketing in that in that way. And if I may say so earlier, your interesting comment about experiencing Walesful fantasy, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. That's a fair view of Wales that you need to begin to investigate, because unless you're careful, it'll obscure uh, your vision of the real Wales, present and past. Right? Um, I've got no. I don't mind. I mean, this is in a way, it's wonderful that that, that use has made of the of the stories in that way. But be very, very careful that you don't begin to confuse that with the reality, because that is simply modern consumer uh, culture uh, turning something that is authentic into something that's inauthentic. That's what's really happening there. And good luck to them. So, as you say, there's an element, unless you're careful, of treachery. You know that, that one, trans one account of translation says that a translator is, is in fact a betray. Uh, all translators are betrayers because they are smuggling cultural booty across the border, right? Now, that doesn't matter. You talk about Germany, by the way, some Welsh writers have been greatly influenced by Rilke. We could talk about that. It's a very interesting phenomenon, that, why they were attracted to him. In fact, Wales responded to Rilke before England did, right? Rilke. Yeah. OK, and, and there's a lot to be said about that as to why they did. Right? But 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 it's different if you're German, because you're not going to lose out, frankly, by translation. <laughs> you know, even even with all the threats that exist to you as, as, as peoples almost in Germany, it isn't just one, you know, there's so many regions. But 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 uh, it's a big, you're powerful enough as a state, as a people, you will survive. All that. Unless we is careful. In, in, in seeing so much of itself translated into a foreign tongue, it'll lose the original in the process. Um, there are enough people, unfortunately, who are monocot English who suppose that there's no reason why virtually every literature under the sun can't be turned into English <laughs> without pausing for a second to think there may be a cost to pay, which is the loss of the original and everything that is unique about the work, but will always remain with that original. And Wales can't afford to let that happen. So I once crossed swords with my great friend, and I think one of those major of, of, of uh, post-war uh, uh, Welsh poets, Tony Conran, 
uh, whose uh, translations of um, was poetry from the early period to the present day was published as the Penguin Book of Modern Welsh Verse. 1960s, huge impact on cultures across the world. And I interviewed Les Murray, uh, the great Australian poet, now sadly passed away. I had a chance to, to interview him, got on very well with him. And uh, Les Murray said, you know, he said, um, I really began to take poetry seriously when I read Tony Conran's translations from the Welsh when I was living briefly in Penarth. Um, and that was the power of Tony's translations. But when I had to review uh, uh, an updated edition of it, I did venture to say that unless he was careful, Tony would become a betrayer. Not meaning to be, but he would. And he didn't like it. I don't blame him because I, I, went, I went a bit far. And I said it was a bit like sticking thoroughly uh, in the last head on a, on a pike comes again and place it on the Tower of London, which is what they did. <laughs> displayed his head on the Tower of London. And by the way, when I... My, my daughter was a single Tower of London, and I used to be there sometimes at midnight on, on, on Christmas Eve, gazing at these towers, thinking, Sir William's head was up there once. That's that a, a strange experience. But anyway, the, 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 so I, but Tony didn't like that. I, I quite can't see it. I mean, I, I went too far. But what I was getting at is the point I'm making to you now, that, 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 that the process of translation is ambivalent in its consequences. Yep. So be very careful. Okay, yeah. is that enough? Thank you. That's perfect. And actually, I did... I did have. Um, I'm aware of time, so I, I'm. 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 But but I did yeah, actually yeah. have a point about the importance of translation and work in translation. Um, so I, I English speakers, uh, do, I I don't think are willing to embrace work in translation in the same way as Germans or Swedes or even you know the Welsh because actually English English is the world language. So or Americans. No. Americans are very good at Americans have been very good at translation. Uh, in fact, some of the best translators have been in America, including major writers like W.S. Merwin. Um, they've been far ahead of the English in that, and, and I admire them for it because, of course, they have got this worldview. And anyway, that's another story. Yeah. I read an interview where you said, I felt isolated in a great sea of Englishness. And you refer to this in an interview and that sense of, alien, of the alien world and um, the culture shock within that Anglophone world, you coming mm. as, a, as a Welsh speaker. And that brings me on to the displaced peoples who are shaping and changing our British Isles. Mm. Once again, you know, this kind of this this alien you, you refer in, in, in the uh, in your book, you refer to kind of feeling like the invisible man. Mm. Um, and I, this this idea of the changing dynamics of a nation mm. and finding a narrative that sits in the middle of the expectation of the reader and the new stories. Um, our, our worldviews and challenges are creating. So I, I would love to hear more from you on that, because, again, I suspect that kind of bilingualism and that sense of, you know, stranger in a strange land is something that a lot of our readers would be able to relate to. I'd agree with that. And because I was saying, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to, to being hospitable to, to as many peoples as possible, really. And I'm fascinated by the differences they bring. Uh, not by, necessarily always by their immediate ability to assimilate, but 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 the differences that they bring, because I think that difference is, is enriching, and 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 uh, I hope uh, that that always because it's bilingual would be you know reasonably open to that. But uh, quite frankly, I, 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 I've got my doubts. I'm, I've got no pre no 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 illusions about Wales. Uh, it's it's as full of prejudices and as full of all sorts of nasty things as any other country, you know. But um, that, that, that sense of 
Yeah, culture shock, yes, because uh, an example, uh, as I've talked about before, I just moved a few miles when I first came to college from a place called Goss Island, the industrial hinterland of Wales, where I grew up well speaking, it was also English, uh, to, to study at Swansea. And I didn't understand at that time, I was too young, why on earth the people that I encountered at Swansea didn't want to understand, know anything at all about my background? Um, so when, for example, it was natural for me when writing an essay about Dickens to talk about Daniel Owen, who was a major Welsh writer influenced by, by Dickens, actually, and contemporary with him, uh, and probably still remains to this day that they're one of the best of Welsh novelists. When I, I didn't expect them to be able to follow exactly what I was saying, but I, I did gesture towards Daniel Owen and said, I thought it was interesting that 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 there was, there was this sort of relationship uh, between Daniel Owen and, and Dickens. They didn't want to know. <laughs> they just didn't want to know. Uh, they didn't want to be bothered with that. And then later, when I ventured to point out to my tutor, who was a world authority on the metaphysical poets, uh, uh, Jim Smith, I get to know him very well later, and I ventured to point out to him in a tutorial, timidly, that Henry Vaughan was Welsh, <laughs> was actually born near Brecon, and was actually bilingual. He was shocked. He didn't think that was relevant at all. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, the context in which to set Vaughan is the the European Baroque. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. I know it is. I never doubted that. Of course it is. <laughs> but, but you might at least bear in mind that Vaughan approached that and contributed to that as it were, movement from this particular background. And indeed, as I've also said before, when I met the, the very eminent contemporary Welsh poet, Julie Graham, and interviewed her as well, um, and uh, she said how much she enjoyed Vaughan, and I said, yeah, well, yeah, 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 that's interesting. I said, because you know he's bilingual. What? She said. Yeah. I said, yes, he's bilingual. That explains it, she said. I said, why? That explains why I'm interested in him. I said, why? Well, yes, there is. Actually, she used a term which is a program Celtic culture. There's a talk, she said, T-O-R-Q-U-E. There's a talk to his poetry, a peculiar twist to it, which makes it utterly distinctive and, for me, fascinating. And she, of course, I then found out was bilingual. She grew yeah. up in Italy. Her first language was Italian. Yeah. And that, of course, she's one of the most prominent and eminent of contemporary American writers. So she immediately understood what I was talking about. Because she was bilingual, she understood meant that Vaughan was bilingual. Again, in 12 poems, I point out that is exactly the milieu that the greatest of which was Devon William belonged to in uh, the 15th century. It's exactly, or 14th century. Yeah. That's exactly, because it was multilingual. His yeah. Wales was a multilingual, multicultural Wales, because the Normans, of course, were in power. There was indigenous Welsh, but there's two languages, well, three languages, because the Normans are starting to speak what we call English today now. But they were also, of course, talking, talking uh, um, uh, uh, in, in, in French. So you know, the Normans, who themselves were, were effectively bilingual, you had the Welsh, who had to be at his level, he was an aristocrat, he had to be at least trilingual. Yeah. Probably, he certainly knew Latin. Yeah. He probably knew Italian because the troubadours were an influence on him. That's not bad, you know. I mean, that's that that's for, for a 14th century poet to take that for granted, to assimilate it, and yeah. for that then to make it because of manifest in the kind kind of poetry. Not it's the kind of poetry I've talked talked about before. Uh, the importance of Raymond Williams' phrase "structures of feeling," yeah. and how. Writing poetry can capture that the structure of feeling of a period different from her own. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what the form of Dawda Gwilym, which he invented to cow with, 
invented a new form, which is a nimble form, an adaptable form, one that could go several ways depending on the need. Now, that is very much a form which was appropriate to uh, the period in which he lived, where he needed to be nimble, culturally nimble, politically nimble, you know, in order to survive, you had to be that. You draw so many parallels, actually, to, you know, the, the, the time, you know, it's almost like in, in Tolkien, the elves passed to the West. Yeah. You know, how time just, part, how, how things pass and shift. And, and it's almost the, the swan song of certain eras. Like you mentioned, the Welsh revivalism was a swan song of, yeah. of yeah. that era. Yeah. Of, well, and and I, I, love, I love that idea and that need to reflect our shifting culture through poetry and how that poetic song holds it within it. Well, that's, that for me is, is why, that's what justified my yeah. approach which was to try to view history, the past. History is a big word, and I've said before, it, it's, you know, we don't understand it sufficiently well, really. Historians think they get the measure of it, and they haven't, you know. I mean, history is everything's ever been, frankly. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That, 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 to, to try to approach history through the lens of the poetry of different periods. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to point out that that wasn't just a matter of the, the subject matter of those poems, it was also to do with the form of the poems. Yeah, you know the 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 um, the, the, the the form is the embodiment of these it were the structure of feeling of its age, and and that's the point. Uh, not many people get that. It seems to be a fun, simple enough point, a fundamental point really, um, that they, they 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 got this curious power somehow to encapsulate uh, uh, to to reflect structurally. The structure of of the society at large that, that that's what used to, and that fascinates me, and that's what I try to explain in several points I was doing in these poems. You know that that, and put it differently, I didn't want the poets to be uh, poems to be merely ancillary, to the history, yeah. which is the way it tends to be treated. Okay, yeah. um, you do you 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 find out the truth about the past uh, through what we call history. So this claimed. And then to illustrate it, you get hold of a poem. No, you don't. You start learning for sort of how exactly to read a poem. And once you learn how to read a poem, then you begin to sense how that poem opens up a period for you. It's that way around. So I try to make sure that the poetry was primary, not secondary. Um, that was the point of it. That was so important. I, I, I had to I had to make a note of that, that the, the poem was primary and that was a way into reading the period. And actually, with that in mind, that brings me on to the next part of that question. Mm. Do you think the digital language we're seeing, this kind of unnuanced pidgin English mm. that is taking over our, mm. our Anglophone world, basically because of web text? you know, Twitter, all the social media. Um, do you think that's changing our cultural identity? I homogenization of language equals homogenization of people. Yeah. I mean, by the way, that's not to, to, to deny that I think all sorts of interesting new sorts of creative forms will come out of the digital world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think we've, of course, I don't think our generation will ever quite understand its potential, you know, because basically we're still, even the young people, uh, they'll have to, they'll have to be at least a generation passing, I think, before they begin to see exactly what what the potential of this these new languages, if that's what they are, are. But there's a big well, the, the one of the big problems of the, of the contemporary world is 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 the is the, is, it's the ecology of language, isn't it? it? It has to do with recognizing how important it is for the world that we maintain as many 
languages in being and in existence as possible. Wittgenstein said once again, time after time, every language is a unique picture of the world. It's a unique picture of the world. Okay, it is it is irreplaceable because it can it can it, it can never be reproduced. And it's important we appreciate that. And unfortunately, the digital age, which is frankly also a product of the consumer age, I mean that's the, the, the our challenge is that we live in a mass consumer society. Um, unfortunately, we've lost touch with a great deal of the Marxist analysis that I think you know had some understanding of of, of the, the the destructive potential of all of this. You don't have to be a Marxist. But I, I, I think that the modes of analysis that they developed, Raymond Williams being an example, we badly, badly need because we completely lost sight of it. Um, we don't, we, we can't practice it anymore, and that means we lack a critical vocabulary. You know, you're a member of the Gorset of the Bards, um, modern day Bards. How can we use? How can we use the voice of poetry, of song, of the modern technology we have to connect with the disenfranchised and often young voices? Um, so that's a kind of multiple question, but fundamentally it's around cultural history, cultural futurism and how we can reconnect and burn that flame so brightly that needs to be burnt. Well, uh, uh, to go back to what you said about me, to be clear, I, mean, I think by the end I was getting old. And I was suffering from burnout, you know. I mean, I was still teaching at 65. Um, and uh, I, I, I felt exhausted because I was I was giving out all the time. And I had always felt that my raison d'etre, that which justified my doing what I was doing, was such ability as I had to, to excite young people uh, into uh, an appreciation of the potential of literature. And of poetry. I tried to do that all my life. I'd enjoy doing it. Uh, you know, I've been very well compensated for doing it in emotional ways as well as in financial ways. Uh, yeah, I began to feel it was getting harder, uh, largely because I was getting older and getting drained, but also because it wasn't their fault. But the poets, I, the uh, youngsters I was teaching were more unfamiliar with poetry, more suspicious of it, I mean, I want to say more hostile to it than gen previous generations of students have been, and that didn't surprise me. And I know you could go on for ages about this, but it basically comes under the education system, doesn't it? Um, I had a, a very close friend who passed away, a fellow academic, a colleague of mine, who had a very, very bright daughter. By the way, she's emerging as a very talented novelist, just published her first novel. When she was doing A-level, she broke her heart because she was writing these remarkable essays. And he would bring them into college because he thought they were astonishing. And he asked my opinion because an objective one, wasn't it? I wasn't her father. I said, well, you know, these are first class quality, aren't they? He said, yeah, well, that's what I thought, he said. But she's getting low grades for them. I said, Why? She said, because she's not giving the right answers. I said, you can't have the right answers. He said, I know that, but but they think you can. Um, they made certain points in classes, which is what they thought the examiners wanted to hear, what the system demanded if you wanted good performance. And she wasn't trotting these out because she was thinking for herself, 
experiencing for herself and responding from herself. I thought, there's something wrong here. There's something fundamentally wrong here. I mean, if this is what teaching literature has become, we should stop teaching it. We should stop teaching it. There's no point whatsoever. And then I realized, well, that's why my poor students come to me in the state of shock that they're in, you know, and why I find it so difficult to arouse them from that shock. Um, so what the hell do we do about that? I, I, there are plenty of people doing excellent work. I think of Gillian Clark, you know, who is one of the finest poets of contemporary ways, but has spent her life, bless her, going around schools, uh, the length and breadth of the UK and exciting youngsters, very small children, by getting them to play with words. The plasticine of language, you know? I mean, that's what they're doing. You might call it doodling. I don't care what you call it. Um, my great friend is the greatest Welsh uh, American poetry uh, critic of a generation, Helen Wendler at Harvard. And uh, Helen, like me, despaired. She said the youngsters don't know what on earth poetry is. <laughs> she said, the American system is killing it. He said, why don't they teach them nursery rhymes? Why don't they teach them nonsense rhymes? Why don't they just play around with E.E. Cummings? Just get the kids to start playing with language and then gradually show them how a poem comes out of that, you know? If I were to start again, that's what I try to do. Even at, at a university level, I would warn the students that this wouldn't be good for their health. It wouldn't be good for their careers, because it wouldn't be. But if they wanted to begin to understand poetry, this is how to start. And then I get them to learn some poetry off by heart. Um, you know, that much maligned practice. Um, but learn some poems by heart. I don't care whether they like it or not. They can damn well learn it, you know, uh, because <laughs> because it, it, it may well be that in 30, 40 years time, it'll begin to make sense to them. So, um, I want a radical revolution, but I'm too old. I can't do it. So I, it's up to you now and, and, and your generation to do something about it because it's part of to be done. But the, the system, you're going to find the system terribly difficult to crack, I'm telling you now. Terribly, terribly difficult to crack. And I I, uh, I, I, I don't like to say this because I'm, I brought lots of youngsters into my profession. I know that through my example and so on. But I have my doubts about the profession now. I mean, I don't see the point of it. I don't see the point of, of going on as we're going on. Um, when I've had so many... I started, I think, about 17th century theology, you know. And I had spent a lot of time in the stacks of learned libraries looking at these extraordinary tomes produced by remarkable people of the 17th century who were extremely bright, far more bright than I am. And they wrote these... But deadly tombs, they they, 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 they wasted their lives writing yeah. these dreary analyses, which are scrupulous in logic and dead as the dodo. And I look now at my books and I think that's exactly what I've been doing. Thank you to Professor Thomas for being the subject of this month's interview. We'll share links so that you can find out more about him and his work and order his books as part of our show notes. Write on Audio is an alternative stories production for pen to print. The producer is Chris Gregory. 